This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio, with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms, and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good for the next few hours, at least. We'll see uh, We'll see how I feel after tonight's games. Yes, indeed. Liverpool currently top of the league. Obviously, Manchester City can change that with a win tonight over Brighton. But the Reds walloped Manchester United last night and Thiago Alcantara put on a clinic. What were your thoughts watching the game? What are your thoughts since the game? Thiago back-to-back performances, which are, I think, the best in midfield that we've seen since Gerard's peak. I think he's been unbelievable. Really, really sensational performances the last couple of games. Just nobody capable of getting near him. And that has pretty much been the, the catalyst to the performances that we've put down. Obviously, there was an, in, an embarrassing gulf, and I thought for a little while I was going to be spot on with that 5 nil prediction again i'm absolutely disgusted that you were right instead yes um we'll we'll move swiftly on from that i was uh, i was a bernardo silva goal away from being spot on at the weekend as well yeah yeah that's true actually um but look we we were both very very confident of a result last night i know there was a bit of talk before the match like right before the match about oh you know we a little bit worried we might slip up you know it can make it awkward for us but i think that that was probably just general pre-game nervousness from people talking i don't think that was anything to do with the actual situations of either club and it proved to be the case yeah i think when i saw phil jones included in the united team and the midfield three of bruno pogba and matic i think my confidence levels went up uh i have a controversial take and that is that the last two performances by thiago are better than any central midfield performance that Steven Gerrard ever put in for this club. As a as a 10 and a right, right-sided right midfielder, Gerrard has all-time great performances. As a central midfielder, 
I don't know he was ever as good as he, as Thiago was last night or at the weekend. No, I mean, it, it would obviously be a very different type of as good or better, wouldn't it? Gerard played in a really different way, but in terms of controlling the game, you could probably say that in their own styles, they, they definitely put in that level of performance. You would never see Gerard doing the kind of, you know, the step over and flick the other way or the some of the turns that he did away from the players, that kind of thing. But you would equally see him do similar types of ball winning that Diago did yeah. last night and at the weekend. Um, similar sort of defence splitting passes, albeit with a really, really different technique to each other. So you'd see different ways of doing similar things, I think. Um, a bit different I watched the game back this morning and there's a couple of immense line-breaking passes by Thiago that find Jordan Henderson. And, and <laughs> they just bounce off him. Yeah, and all I could think of was, if that was Gerard, like, just imagine Gerard was ever given. Now, I know he had Mascherano and Alonso, but he didn't have a Salah. He didn't have a Diaz. He had a Torres rather than a Mane, but he didn't have that elite quality in the wide areas. He didn't have the quality in defence that that is there now. It, it, just imagine if Gerard, twenty three years of age, was just transplanted into that team last night. There would be absolutely no stopping this that team, no stopping it at all. And we may well win everything this year anyway. But I think with Gerard there it would be another level altogether. It would be, for me, the greatest team that English football has ever seen if Gerard, if we had just that that top-class match-winning midfielder in that attacking role. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a, a coincidence that some of Gerard's best years, not even just games, was when he had Mascherano and Alonso and Torres all in the team together. Like, that's that's what brings out the best of the best players as well. Again, it's not a coincidence that we're seeing some of the best of Thiago once the you know forward line has now got more depth more competition everybody really inform all the rest of it whereas maybe earlier on when there was injuries all around him and there were misshapen defensive units behind him and all the rest of it you didn't see the best of him on a frequent basis it, the, these things go hand in hand so uh, I, I have to say that I'm probably thinking of one of the ones that you watched uh, very early on in the game with Thiago's put it between about four United players and to Henderson, it's come off his foot and he's lost the ball, but then he's gone and won it back straight away. And I was mm. thinking to myself at that time, that's like almost Henderson's biggest, weakest point and his best strength there in that about three seconds of play. Because like, he couldn't take the ball as technically as you'd want, like say Mane would probably do or Firmino would do, what Thiago would do, obviously. But then he also just closed down like two players in a row, won the ball back and gave it really simply to Trent. And we started another build. And that was like the exact thing that we've always wanted the most out of Jordan Henderson to do. And, uh, well, his strengths have always probably, been off the ball. Like, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably why we're seeing him, off him play the ball certain making, games now. Exactly. Like that's exactly it. I think that's why he'll be limited in where, when and where he plays. When we have the ball, you want him off the ball. Unfortunately, he insists and demands to be on the ball runs at players, screams at them to give them the ball and then just gives it back to them for no reason at all other than to get those passing stats up. And then when they have the ball, you want him on the ball except that he tends not to do that either. He did it last night to good good effect in the first half. I thought his first half performance was quite good. His second half performance was poor. But overall, he was okay last night. It was better than what we've seen him put forward for most of this season but it was a level below the other 10 men in red. Um, 
What about United, though, Carl? I mean, you're a slightly younger man than myself, but I I can never remember a United team this bad. I, I have looked back through the 80s and watched as much footage as I can of the 80s. I don't think they were ever that bad. The 70s is before my time, obviously, and before yours, but in our lifetimes, have we ever seen Manchester United this bad, this disorganised, this disinterested? They That looked like 11 lads that turned up with absolutely no interest in playing. They were walking in the first half. Pogba got himself a convenient injury. They look completely and utterly broken. Yeah, no other word for it, really. That's a a club, I know, but a team which needs ripping up and starting again, to be honest. I think even the players who are very, very good at that club, and there are still several of them, I don't honestly know whether you can rediscover their best um, traits and their best form and consistency to the level that United want to be at and need to be at without taking them out of this club and this team and this environment and everything else. Because mm. you just bring in another manager and like we've said on a couple of other podcasts, that's not enough. That's not to change the atmosphere. That's not to change the um, environment that they're in, the mentality around the club, the expectations that are there from certain people. Obviously, there are a few there who seem to have an unimaginable amount of power. And so maybe that releases the pressure on them to perform. Maybe that's not the culture which has been, for example, created by Klopp at Liverpool. Maybe that's part of the reason why Liverpool don't buy the players who are already the biggest names at the very top of the game. They might be at the top of the game, but they're not seen as at the top of the game. You know, like like Alisson, let's say. He wasn't mm. um, seen as the best in the world, even though he probably was only maybe 15% below what he is now when we signed him. Um, it's a very, very different kind of culture which you create when you bring in a name, an established, has-to-be-built-around kind of person. So maybe there's more work to be done there for United than in actual just general transfer terms. It's more of a, a culture issue, I think, because, I mean, like, obviously I never played to any kind of level like this, but it it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't see why that matters what level you play at, unless you're just having a kick about down the park. If you're playing in a team, every team that I've ever played in at whatever level has always been to win the game. I mean, afterwards, and you have a laugh and whatever else, but during the match... I've never played with a bunch of people or in a team who haven't wanted to win. And even if you're losing, you're losing by a lot because I've played for some rubbish teams along the way. You still have a go. Like at your own level, whatever you're capable of, you still have a go. But these guys aren't. You can see them walking around after five minutes. You can see them not doing uh, the jobs that they've clearly been assigned to. You can see Ranić after the game saying, like, five minutes in. And he's basically said they didn't do what I told them to. I mean, I don't understand how... One, they keep getting picked because he must be tempted just to say, do you know what, all of it, just get out and I'll play the under-21s or whatever. Yeah. He must be tempted to do that because that some of their some of their performances, not just against Liverpool, this one was particularly bad last night because of the relevance and the context of the match, but loads of their performances this season have been like that. It's, it's you need really, to go back really a week to the Everton game, Carl. Go back yeah, a week to the Everton shocking. game. It was an absolute appalling. They played Watford at home uh, about a month ago and Watford were shit. They were absolutely terrible. I follow a couple of Watford fans on Twitter and they were furious at how bad their team was and they still got a nil-nil draw at Old Trafford. Like, it's unacceptable. And Neville hit on a couple of key things last night. I thought Neville was actually very honest and open in, in a lot of his his views on the club. And one thing that struck me was when he talked about how 
you know, there's too many players there that are bigger than the manager and how Liverpool, at Liverpool and Chelsea and City, the manager is the main guy. And it also got me thinking, you know, you've got Pogba's there on 350 grand a week and Sancho's on similar and Rashford's on 250 and Maguire's on 250 and De Gea's on 400 or whatever he's on. It's a, like you've got a whole bunch of people earning an awful lot more money than their manager. At Liverpool, I would imagine Virgil, maybe off his new contract, earns more than Klopp. Maybe. Even then, I have doubts. Uh, Salah, if he gets his new contract, will earn more than Klopp, as will Mane if he gets one. But their personalities are not like the personalities at United. Bruno's getting a new contract as well. That's 350 grand a week. Eric Ten Hag is going to come in. What's he going to be earning? About 100 grand a week, about 5 million a year. So when he's on that type of contract and managers are far easier to get rid of than players, what's the motivation for these players? Like, are they really going to respect a manager who doesn't have the power to get rid of them? Because if they don't want to go, there's no way of getting rid of them. Harry Maguire has... Four years left on his contract, including an option year. Um, he earns 250 grand a week. He cost 80 million. He's the club captain. He's 29 years of age. He starts for England. If Ten Hag comes in and says, right, I want a new centre back. You're out of the team. You're no longer captain. And Maguire thinks, okay, I'll just cause a bunch of trouble. Like what can Ten Hag really do to him? Because even if he finds him, there's only a limit on what he can find him. And Maguire is still going to be more than comfortable. Whereas with Ten Hag, his job is on the line. If, let me ask you this question. If, Eric, if you were Eric Ten Hag, and you're currently managing Ajax, where everything you want is catered to, you've got best-in-class people in all departments, you have... Full control and say over team affairs, not necessarily transfers, but in terms of development all the way down to the academy, etc., etc. And you're looking at this Manchester United job, which you've apparently agreed to take but haven't signed anything for yet. If you saw that last night, would you be at least tempted to call your agent and say, look, I don't want to do this. Let me stay here for another year. And then next year I'll reassess because potentially there'll be better jobs out there for me. Real might be available. City might be available. Let's hold off. Would you be tempted if you were him? Because I know I would. I don't know if I'd be tempted to outright do that, but certainly you would want a few assurances, like written down assurances, not just these ones that United seem to do on a regular basis. Um, there would There would be quite strict criteria, I think, of what you wanted from the club uh, in terms of like the support that you were going to get in terms of um, very, very public backing maybe from the several hierarchy figures, whether it's the new uh, chief exec or whether it's going to be Darren Fletcher or whatever it is that they think that they've got in place as the, as the structure, you would want things made really, really clear publicly and then behind closed doors to the squad. And, you know, if you have a particular player you don't want there and you want to sell and you're not going to play and you're not going to build around, well, they have to get rid of them as a as a condition of you coming in. That's fair, but it's easier said than done. If Maguire doesn't want to leave, if, if Bruno decides to become troublesome, if De Gea wants to stay and whatever else, it, it, 
they're in a really bad situation. It, I agree with what you said earlier. I don't know that even with the few players at that club that you would potentially want, I don't know if it'll work with them at that club. Everything just seems toxic from top to bottom. You've got bad owners. You've got unqualified people running the football side of the club. You've got Darren Fletcher last night sitting on the bench. What the fuck is Darren Fletcher doing sitting on the bench? He's the technical director. Get him away up in the stands. Can you imagine Michael Edwards popping down to the dugout, tapping Kloppo on the shoulder and say, I have an idea about how he can change this. Like, Klopp would probably just quit on the spot, walk out and get in the first plane to Germany. And we wouldn't see him again. But yet, Ranić is sat there and this buffoon just wanders down and all of a sudden he sat next to him. If that's the case with Ten Hag, if this type of interference and these type of unqualified people are going to be having big says in what goes on, it's doomed from the start. And to be honest, I don't think it matters who they appoint. Ten Hag, if he goes there, is doing it for a paycheck. I don't think there's any chance he's sorting that club out. Not while you have so many overpaid, underperforming players, the lifetime of whose contract has three and four years to run. I, I think it's a, I think it's a fool's errand, to be honest. Uh, speaking of fool's errands, we were set the task on Discord, I think by Andy Wales, but if it wasn't, I'm really, sh- I'm really sorry. I can't think who it was. I think it was Andy that asked, "How would we go about transforming Spurs under Conte into title contenders?" Now. We've asked, and apparently we're not allowed to, you know, burn down the existing club and start afresh. We have to be Spurs, so we can't just unspurs things. We have to build the Spurs team. So um, I thought this was more straightforward than I expected it to be. Now, I, I sort of gave loose guidelines of a 50 million budget and then whatever we could generate through some sales, didn't put any limit on the number of sales or, or the number of signings. Uh, how have you gone about this? Uh, have you taken drastic measures or are, are you thinking kind of subtle incremental progression? Um, I've added a couple of, well, four key players basically who fit Conte's way of playing and makes the starting lineup better basically. Because, I mean, we can see already quite clearly that Three things I think about Spurs. One, Conte has improved them in general. Um, two, their attack is a lot better than their control of games and defence in general. And three, that there are certain very easily upgradable people who he has to keep turning to at the minute, whether that's mm. because of injuries or that's who they've already spent big money on or whatever. So I've gone for either three or four, depending on you know how much we decide that these people are worth. I don't think that it's a one-year thing to get them back into title contention, even with Conte, to be fair. But probably you know, two years, or just one year if they had a much bigger spend, but Spurs don't tend to do that. So I've also obviously sold quite a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, the the, the restriction on Spurs will be their finances. They'll have to do a version of what we did, ideally. You know, that's being realistic about it, not doing it like we're doing it here. They will have to try and add a couple of pieces each year. The problem they have, though, is that Harry Kane is, I think, 29 and Son is about the same age. 
So the two players you ideally want to be building around, by the time the rest of your team is ready to contend for a title, they're just going to be past their peak years and declining. Um, of the current team, so, so let's let's start with sales then. Let's start with sales. How many would you be looking to sell? Because I've got five that I'd be looking to sell. There's probably uh, more, but I've stuck with five. Seven, eight, I think I've got. But one okay. of them's a loan ending and one of them's uh, sending out on loan as well. Oh, I've got, yeah. So I've got Galini as the loan, as a loan ending. I didn't include him, yeah. but yeah. So I've got him to go back. It hasn't worked. He's not very good anyway. No need for that, uh, man. Um, I've got my five sales. I've got Matt Doherty, Joe Roden, Davinson Sanchez, Giovanni Lo Celso, and Tangai Endembele. And my logic with them is, Doherty, his age and his talent, I just don't think he's a top four caliber player. Roden and Davinson, there's already a bit of a log jam at centre back there. You're looking, I'm going to be looking to add two centre backs into the group. So I wanted two out. I think they're the two most easily sellable ones who'll bring me kind of decent value. I reckon I can probably get about 30 million for the pair of them, about 10 million for Doherty. Lacelso, I think, is an easy sell. I think Villarreal will want to keep him. And I think at twenty-five million, you could probably find a deal there. And then Endumbelli, I've I've just marked him down as a twenty-five million sale. I'm sure there will be clubs interested. I know it's a big loss on what they paid. I don't care. It's not my mistake. It's somebody else's. And with him, despite the fact that I adore his talent, I think he's the type that could become a little bit disruptive because he already has been in the past. If he's not getting in the team, he tends to run to the French media, and all of a sudden you've got a bit of a an unnecessary noise. So I've got the five of them leaving, and I figure roughly that's about 90 million coming in for those five. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't disagree with any of them. I put Roden down as a loan, but I don't really care. I don't, I don't rate Roden quite as highly as uh, some people seem to, to be fair. So... I'm happy to sell him either way. The only ones I would add to that list are Harry Winks, who I don't have space for, and Bergwijn, because it looks like he wants to leave, and so I just assume there might even be a deal there done already somewhere, to be honest. Yeah, I I did consider both. I've kept Winks, I think, for quota purposes. Um, Bergwijn, I've, I've sort of got him as my third choice left winger. Um, but I'm more than happy to, to sell if need be. I did consider making Bergvine a right wing back in the spirit of Victor Moses, but I get the feeling like you that he, he might want to leave and potentially go back to the Netherlands. So, yeah, wouldn't be surprised at all if he left. So, looking at what's left of the squad... What players are you keeping as starters? Ignore depth for a minute. Just in terms of starters, what players are you keeping in the first team? And then what spots then do you, are you left with that you need to fill just in the first 11? Uh, Christian Romero, unsurprisingly. Yes. I'm keeping all the front three as well, Kulusevsky, Kane and Son. Same. I'm keeping Bentancur rock solid in centre mid. Same. And I've kept... 
Aguilon at left wing back because there's just too many other positions to fill at the minute. Yeah, so I've I've got Regulon. I've kept Hoysberg in my team for a year, but I've got a succession plan, so don't panic. Bentoncourt is an obvious one. He's been really good since joining. Kept the front three. Obviously, you're keeping Romero. I've kept Lloris in goal, but I have looked. I have targeted a, a successor, someone to bring in, develop behind him, and then and then set and then make the first choice in twelve months. I I would look to replace him immediately, but they've just given him a new contract, and he is the club captain. So I don't want it to stabilize things too much. So let's start there. Then you you've gone for a new goalkeeper. Who have you gone for? So I have. I have put down someone who hasn't signed yet, but he's widely linked with Inter. Um, Andre Onana is on a free, and I figure that I haven't seen him for two years now, basically, apart from like, a couple of games for Ajax because of his ban and then obviously being out of the team since he came back. So if the Ajax deal is not done because he's on a free and because of how good he was beforehand, I'd definitely make it a go of bringing him in knowing that you've still got Lloris for the exact reasons you've just covered, who can be first choice, but Onana could come in and either take his place if Lloris carries on doing exactly what Hugo Lloris has been doing all season long, or else if Onana just proves to be very, very good, then he just comes in as a natural course of events. I think that's fair. I do think that's fair. He is strongly linked with Inter, but then that that does seem to have sort of died off a little bit. Maybe it's a thing that it's just done and people are assuming it's done. But in he, watching he Inter fans well. talk recently, they're, they're not even mentioning him for next season. No, I mean, he was supposed to have had a, a medical with them earlier in the season, but there was nothing official at all. It was just a couple of reports. And actually, in the last international break, he was actually involved in a car crash as well with Cameroon. Mm. Um, he was okay, nobody or anything like that. But again, when those reports came out, there was nothing about uh, about his future, you know, how they would normally give a bit of background and describe the player. Again, nothing at all, just Ajax goalkeeper. So as far as I'm concerned, it isn't done. And so I'm swooping in, me and Fabio, with his uh, Juventus contact book in hand and me pointing out all these other players who play for other teams and we'll get the deal done. You don't just have to buy players from Turin, Fabio. There are other cities in the world. It's what I'd be screaming at him endlessly because the man seems obsessed with players from Juve and Torino. Um, I've gone Alex Mere in goal from Napoli, 25 years of age. The Napoli move hasn't gone great. He had a rough start there. They've been a bit chaotic in the last couple of years. They've not given him as many opportunities as he's deserved. He's had runs in the team where he's looked good, had a poor game and immediately been dropped out. Whereas others at that club, David Espina being the uh, primary example, has had multiple absolute shockers and is still in the team the following week. It's a remarkable rise for a man that wasn't good enough to get his game at Arsenal to just be the automatic first choice at Napoli. So I'm going to rescue Alex Mare. One of the things I like about him is I like his style. I like the fact that he's a sweeper-keeper type. He's very similar stylistically to Hugo Lloris, he's that same type of of goalkeeper. He's got maybe a little bit too much confidence in his kicking ability, as does young Hugo. But I think someone like Alex Murray is the type of keeper 
who has a high upside and can be developed into the keeper he promises to be. What I also like about him is he's left-footed, and Hugo Lloris is left-footed. And when you get... Lloris is going to have to play some games. Defenders are used to passing back to him on his left foot. I like the fact that Murray can come in and that can just stay as is. They're not going to have to overthink things playing it back to him the way we saw. Like that that Mane goal against City, I am fully convinced that is entirely John Stones' fault because he plays it back to the keeper's left foot and that's a right-footed keeper. He also dallied on far too long and invited Mane in, but he played it back to the keeper's right uh, keeper's left foot. If he just plays it to his right foot outside the goalpost, the keeper walks onto it and clears it without even taking a touch. So I've looked at that, and I think Alex Murray is my best option. I think I can get him for about 15 million, and I think he's solved potentially a long-term issue. And if he's not good enough to be the long-term starter, I don't have a big investment in him, so I can go again and get somebody else. So I'm going to go with him uh, as my goalkeeper. Um, So I've got him, I've got Lloris, and I've got young Brandon Austin as my three keepers. You mentioned Regulon as your left wing back. Uh, can I assume Stephen Sessignon is your back up there and you're not looking to bring anyone in that position? Yeah, that's right. Okay, I'm exactly the same. Let's go to the right then. So I've marked Emerson Royale down as my backup right wing back. And I think I need someone that gives me a little bit more attacking quality, a little bit more ball carrying ability. I think Emerson has been better than people have made him out to be. I don't think he was worth the money they paid for him. But I do think he's a decent player who can be a good squad player for them for the next few years if they decide to hang on to him. So I've gone for Max Ahrens because I think talent-wise, he's very, very good. I think he's shown he can play in this division. Norwich are going down. I assume he will not go down with them again. And I think 20 to 25 million probably gets me Max Ahrens and gives me my wing-back quartet. What have you done at right wing-back, or have you done anything at all? I have. I've added one as well. Not too dissimilar to you, actually. Uh, A little bit quicker, I think, and a little bit better ball-carrying, and a little bit more expensive as a result of all of that. I've gone for Tarek Lamptey. Um, I I am willing to go quite big money here, actually. I think this is one of the key areas for uh, Conte team to upgrade. It's one of the most important roles in his team. And I I think Emerson is not really of the calibre of a player to get a team up to title-challenging uh, level of quality, to be honest. I don't actually think he's that much of an upgrade over Serge Aurier, other than he has better, uh, how should we say? Functioning brain power? Well, yes, that, in terms of not doing stupidities. But, I mean, like, in the final third, when he's got it and when he's ready to... Make the, I think Aurier has got a really good cross on him, but he doesn't no. really know what he's doing. He just, you know, just pump, pump it in, someone yeah. will get there. So I think Emerson's better than him at that, but I don't think he's better than him in really any other uh, area of the pitch, which is a lot of money to pay for not really an upgrade. Mm. Yeah, that, that is fair. That is fair. I, I did consider Lamptey. The, the only concern I have with Lamptey is his size. Well, there's two things. His size and his and the hamstring injury. Like with Lamptey, he's always going to be so reliant on his speed 
Yes. Because he, he can't cope physically. Like, he's not strong enough to compete otherwise. But his speed is absolutely incredible. It's, it's, it's an explosion of pace that you don't see very often. And coming off a hamstring injury, and I know he's been back from it for a few months now, but they've been very careful with him since he came back. But when a hamstring injury keeps you out for nearly a year, that's the type of thing that would make me very concerned. Um, largely because of what happened to Michael Owen and how he had to alter his game. And it's different for Lamptey in the position he plays when it comes to altering his game. Guile won't often work as a wing-back when you're that small. Um, so I, I think if you, if he stays fit and if you can rotate him with Emerson, then that can be Emerson. Emerson can just be the cart horse that plays against the dross when you've got enough without Lamptey. Um, that would be the one concern I'd have with Lamptey is just is that injury possibility. Or yeah, re-injury possibility. I mean, yeah, it's fair. I mean, obviously, this is as usual. You'd be putting through the the rigorous medicals and all the rest of it, and you have to make sure that there is no longer term concerns there. But it kind of goes for everyone, doesn't it? And Spurs, just like other teams, have signed plenty of players with their share of injuries beforehand. Um, in this made-up scenario, Tarek Lamptey passes with flying colours. I'm pleased to report. Must have been the same doctor that did Andy Carroll's medical. Uh, we'll move on. We'll move on. <laughs> we'll move on. Um, no, Lamptey, is, he's, he's a special player. He really is. And there have been links to Spurs. If they were to go and get him, there's no doubt. It's a, it's a huge upgrade of what they have there. Um, let's move into, def- into the centre defence then. We've both mentioned Romero as the one we keep as a starter. I've lined up Tanganga, Dyer, and Davies as my backup three, um, just because they work across the way, so that's fine. So I've got Romero as my right-sided centre back in the three, because I think that's where he's sort of that's where he's been playing. It's probably where he fits best in a Conte three. There's definitely a strong argument to play him in the middle as well, depending on what you put either side. But where have you put him first and foremost? Yeah, on the right as well, actually. Um, I think, judged by this team and obviously the inter-team, it's the best fit for him under Conte. Mm. I, I like I like Romero as the central one. I like him playing from there. I like him covering from there. But that's not quite the role that Conte has his central centre-back doing. That's more of the clearing, get your head, boot the ball, do what is necessary to you know bring down by any means necessary. Anybody running through, stop that ball getting anywhere near the penalty spot. That's the kind of thing he wants there. That's um, the job which has been given to Eric Dyer, obviously. So I think Dyer has been performing better there than when he's asked to play in a two and he has to play a little bit more. I think there's still a bit of a misconception about him sometimes because he used to play in midfield that he's a really good ball-playing defender or anything. But Dyer's best performances in a, a back four as part of a two-man defence came when he was alongside Toby Alderweireld. And Alderweireld mm. was the one who was playing out. He was the one who was switch and play for Spurs from deep. He was the one who was basically starting everything from the base and Dyer's role was to clear the ball and Dyer's role was to make headed challenges and all that kind of stuff. So Dyer is my backup in the middle, Romero on the right. And I haven't spent too much for the middle one because I think it's a pretty functional role. And I think it's probably a little bit easier to find someone for that, but I've gone big on the left side of the fence. 
Right, so let's start there then. I've gone for Josco or Josco Gvardiol from Orbi Leipzig because when I think of the Inter team and I think of Bastoni's role as a ball-carrying centre-back, the aggressive nature that Conte wants in his flanking centre-backs, I think Gvardiol, for me, fits in like a glove. Now, I've, I think I've put down $45 million for him. I think that's enough to get him. They paid 16 or 18 for him. I think he would be outstanding in that position. Now, there's obviously other options as well that would fit very, very well, but he he's the one I thought was the best fit for me. Yeah, that's fair. The only reason I've not actually gone for Guardiola is because I think in uh, Inter, I think Conte will demand someone who is already ready-made. I don't think he wants all of his experience. signings. Yeah, I don't think he wants all of his signings to be, you know, the Sessegnon variety. Let's say I think he's he's quite vocal about wanting people who are already ready to make the team go to the next level and be challengers and have consistency in the performances and all the rest of it. So I have actually got a list of three here because I don't know who you think will fit in with availability and let's say up to a 50-ish budget. Uh, the first one is the one you just mentioned, Bastoni, because that's what Conte does. He goes to his old teams and leagues and brings in the ones who are really good for him. I doubt he would be available. So next in line, we've got Bayern Munich's Lucas Hernandez, who is very, very good, but does not always play for them. Mm. Uh, the left side of three, I think, is his best perfect. role overall. Yep. Yeah, perfect role for him. And if not, then slightly below those two level, but definitely more available, is Pau Torres. Yeah, I think Pau's probably the one who has the availability factor. Um, it's hard to know with, with, with Lucas Hernandez whether Bayern would be open to a sale or not. Now, uh, Oliver Kahn has been out recently saying that Bayern are a little bit strapped for cash and they may have to look to get a bit creative this summer. They do have a number of centre-backs there, but they're also losing Nicolas Sula this summer for free. And Zonzi, or no, what's his name? Nianzu, Tango Nianzu. He doesn't seem completely ready just yet. Upa Meccano's had a bit of a nightmare season. They could move Pavard into the centre, and that gives them at least another body there. So maybe they're maybe they could be convinced to sell Lucas Hernandez. But I think I think Pau Torres is probably. He's definitely the most gettable of them. I think, like you said, he's the one a slight level below the other two. The other two are really, really good. Bastoni's special. I think Lucas Fernandez is outstanding. Pau's very, very good, but he's not quite at the level of those two, I don't think. He feels more of a Spurs player. He does. He does. And, and he'd look quite good in that white shirt as well, to be fair to him. Um, but yeah, there's, a, there's maybe a little hint of softness with him. Yeah. That's that's a little bit spurs, but yeah, I think he's a, he's obviously he's a very good very good player. That's why he's been linked to a multitude of top clubs. So I could absolutely see that. Right into the center, I have a feeling we might have the same player in the middle. I'll let you go first. Who have you gone for your middle center back? Well, to mitigate the risk of what you've just said, that Pardo risk can sometimes be a little bit softer or a little bit less. Um resilient and like I said I want someone to do the clearing and the heading and the doing whatever you need to I've gone for Bremer oh I was not expecting that I was not expecting that at all Um, that is a surprise I've gone for Stefan De Vries 
out of contract in a year, 30 years of age, ready-made for Conte because Conte made him what he is right now, playing him in the middle of that back three at Inter. He knows Conte's system inside and out. He has been a consistent quality presence in back threes and back fours for years now. He's an organizer and a leader, which is something I want, especially when I've got Romero, who can at times get little rushes of blood to his head, and Gvardiol, who's quite young. I think De Vries is the steadying hand in there to do all the things you just mentioned, the heading, the kicking, the taking players out when they need to be taken out. I've gone for Stefan De Vries. That's, I actually thought you would go for De Vries. Bremer surprises me. Would you be a little bit concerned about the potential for him and Romero, who are both hyper-aggressive, to evacuate position at some point and go chasing a ball and leave an enormous gap behind them? <laughs> I mean, it sounds to me like you just describing Sergio Ramos for the last decade, but whatever. Um, there's a little bit of Ramos in Bremer. There's a, there's, a yeah. little bit of, there's a little bit of Lovren in him as well. But I think that playing in the middle of the three this year has really helped him reign he's that He's been year. great. Yeah, he's yeah, been, he's I, I been think, excellent this year. I think when he's been basically told, this here, this is your zone. You go any more than like five steps to the side of the D, uh, you're in the wrong place. You know, that's kind of his zone now. And I think that that has helped him um, be a little bit more consistent in terms of his positional play, not have to go chasing the ball. Like I said, I don't want him to be the one who was chasing out into the channels. I, don't, I just want him to be there. That's where he has to stay. So, look, if De Vrij is available, obviously he's the upgrade there. He's the, he's the better one. And I doubt there would be too much of a price difference between them because of the contract situation. But, I mean, we've seen £20 million more or less as as the reported price tag for Bremer yeah. this summer. So, I'm thinking, like, if I'm going big on the left-hand side, I want someone just to do the job consistently in the middle. They haven't got to be an amazing player there. It's true. Now, the rumour, obviously, in Italy at the minute is that De Vrij will leave and Bremer will go to Inter. So it's possible that there's something there for Tottenham. But like you said, I mean, look, if you can if you can get Bremer and you can keep him in the box, and you can, that, that box of you go here to here and here to here, and if I see you outside of them, you're immediately coming and sitting down beside me, and we're going to have a 10-minute conversation about what you've done wrong in front of the world's cameras, which is what Conte will do, because he will lose his shit. He, he he gets so upset when people don't do exactly what he's told them to do. Um, yeah, Bre- look, Bremer's he, he's he's having an outstanding season. There is absolutely no doubt. I would say, along with Tamore, he's probably been the best defender in Serie A this season. Um, I did consider Fikayo Tamore, I have to say, uh, as part of this, but I've gone for the older guiding hand of, of Stefan De Vrij. So, um, Right, so I've got Romero, De Vrij, and Gvardiol. You've got Romero, Bremer, and Pau Torres. Um, that's the back three, the keeper. We've sorted the wing backs. Moving into midfield, I've just stuck with what they have. I've gone with Bentoncourt and Hoysberg with depth of Skip and Winks and Papi Matar Sar, who they bought last summer who I'm looking at as being a starter in 12 months' time, which is why I'm not looking for a replacement for Heusberg, because I think I've got him in-house in Sar, who looks like he's going to be really, really special. So I'm happy enough with my midfield five. It's not a great midfield. It's not a sexy midfield, but it's functional. 
And under Conte, all I really wanted to be is functional. Get the ball, give the ball, don't do anything stupid. Be where you're meant to be. Do your job. Um, so I, I've stuck with that. You, you've kept Bentoncourt. What have you done beside him? So I've kept Skip and Saar for the same reasons, as you say, a bit of backup and squad depth and see who can push on to become a, a more consistent first-team player in the following seasons. But I've added one who I think could be fairly low risk with a potential really high upside. I think the only thing that between that Hoiberg-Bentoncourt partnership, which I do quite like, is that sometimes I think it lacks a little bit of guile, a little bit of quality, moving the ball through the thirds, someone who can not be an attacker midfielder, but who can basically do what we've been speaking about Thiago doing, to be perfectly honest, get the ball into really dangerous areas in a bit more of a clever way at times. Spurs sometimes look a little bit rigid. They sometimes look like they're playing a bit too slow tempo. So he's had a load of injury problems. And I don't imagine that he'd be someone who could play every week. So Hoiberg, Bentancur often. But in principle, when possible, Bentancur and Corentin Tolisso on a free transfer. I do like that. I think that's I think that's a, a, a low-risk, potentially massive reward type of move. Tolisso's ability to progress the ball, his power, his ability to carry the ball and just bounce off people is really, really rare. And, you know, we remember when he was at Lyon, he, he looked like he was going to be the next all-conquering midfielder. But as you said, he's had a bunch of injuries that have just slowed him. I have to say, as you said, he's had a bunch of injuries. I was thinking, he's going to say Rafinha here. He's going to say, who better than, than to replicate Thiago than his brother? <laughs> and I know you love him. So I was thinking, he's going to stick Rafinha in here somehow. Uh-huh. But um, no, no, Quarantine Tolisso is a really good shout. And I don't imagine... I don't imagine there'll be a massive market among the elite clubs for him, given the injury problems he's had. He'll want a hefty enough wage. Yeah. But if he works, that's a hell of a player. If Spurs get top four, they can probably afford that kind of outlay without a guarantee, especially if it's only like, let's say, two years plus another one on appearances Mm. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And to be fair... You've moved out Winks, who earns a decent amount of money. Um, we've moved out a couple of others who are earning decent chunks of money, like Lacelso and Endombele. So, you know, you're going to have a, a bit of extra cash to play with there as well. Um, right, I do, I do like that. I was not expecting that. I do like that. Right, we've both stuck with the same starting front three. I've kept Brian Hill as a backup to Kulosevsky because... Even though Kulisevsky's bigger and stronger, there's somewhat similarities between the two. I've got Son and Mora slash Bergvine on the left. The one last thing I wanted was a backup striker. Have you added anything in the front three? I've just added one, and it's another free transfer. I got rid of Brian Hill as well, or Lowen back out, or whatever. And the same with Jack Clark, who I don't think is ever going to do anything at Spurs. But because they've got quite a few really talented young kids, some of them have already played in like in Europa League this season, that sort of thing, I've only added one. So I've got Lucas Moura as my backup wide forward as such, and then I've added one more nine, but who can also play wide. And I've been a little bit naughty with him. It might cause a few issues between the clubs. I don't really care, though. So I have actually signed Arsenal's Eddie Nketiah on a free transfer. 
I I don't think that's the worst move in the world. I think he's really talented. I think he's got real potential. Like, if I'm Brighton and I'm screaming out for a goal scorer, why don't I offer him a big bag of money? Like, I think he's good enough to start in the league. So absolutely, as a backup to Kane and also an option off the bench who can play with Kane, you know, you'd have no problem at all. Mid-game, you're one down, there's 15 minutes left. You take off one of your centre-backs, you slot it to a back four. In your case, it has to be Bremer. You're not playing the back four with Bremer. So Bremer off, Enketia on, Enketia and Kane through the middle. Son and Kulo can just go wide and, and play as as wingers. Aaron's and Regulon or, or Lamptey and Regulon, in your case, more than compass fullbacks. I don't, I don't mind that at all. Uh, it would, it would definitely cause some consternation in North London. But isn't that part of it? Winding up your your rivals. I think that's great fun. I don't think it quite compares to Sol Campbell and no, losing him no. going the other way. Um, and if they really wanted to, you could probably try and get Lacazette, and he would, be kind of, you know, kind of be the same in terms of he's been the the captain recently and that sort of thing. But I think Inketia is doable. I think it makes sense for him because he's never going to get a chance at Arsenal. Maybe mm. he should step down to be a starter. And obviously, you know, you're not going to start as a number nine on a regular basis. But if it's put to him that they have five, five forwards for three playing every single week, you're going to get games more often than not. It's not just a case of you're in when Kane's not. It is that you can be from the left, you can be instead of Kane, or you can play with two of them. And like you mm. say, one in, one just in behind or a system switch because Spurs have done that plenty of the Conte. So I think there's if it's five from six, as we can see at Liverpool now, in fact, if if you're Divock Origi or Mina Mina right now, you can see you're not getting a lot of game time. But if you're Firmino or Jota, you can see you are getting plenty of game time. Yeah. I think it'd be more or less a similar thing here. Five into three when you've got all those competitions to play in, it's a lot. It is. It is a lot. And you can guarantee him the Cups and you can tell Harry Kane, look, you're not playing in the Cups next year. We need to keep you fit. We've got Champions League. We've got Premier League. You've got bigger fish, fish to fry. Don't even worry about the Cups. And you keep a Troy Parrot or whoever else they have to be on the bench behind Nketi and those. Um, I did consider Lacazette. I, I strongly considered Lacazette here because I, I thought that would be kind of funny as well. The wages, I would imagine, he's, it's his last big contract. He's going to want a massive amount of money, and I don't think I could justify that considering, you know, he, he would primarily be the backup to Kane, even though you'd find ways to get him in the team. But he does a lot of the same things as Kane, just without as much of an end product. Um, I also considered Patrick Bamford here, because I think he's a bit of a poor man's Kane and can do some of the same things, but... He's just he's always injured. Like uh, if I'm getting someone in as a backup striker, I, I kind of need them to be available. Uh, so I've got two options here. Now I've gone with an experienced target man type of all rounder who gets goals and assists, or I've got a young, huge potential player who could do a bit of everything. Could play across the front three could potentially play a bit deeper, allows me a bit more system flexibility. The two names I've got here, Ludovic Ayurka of Strasbourg, who I think has like 11 goals and eight assists this season. He's like 6'6". There's, there's a bit of veg horse about him. 
I, I think he's quite good. I don't think he's a great player. I wouldn't ever suggest him as a starter for a team with title ambitions. But I think as a squad player, I think there would be merit in him. Uh, and the other one is the one I'd probably go for because I always will bet on upside is Charles de Catelier from Club Bruges, who I, I'm really high on and would be very much in favour of Liverpool looking at this summer. Um, I, I think he's someone that has massive potential to be a very special player as a nine, as a false nine, as a 10, as a wide forward, whatever. Kind of like, I don't even want to say he's a poor man's Kai, Kai Havertz. I think he's the smart man's Kai Havertz because I think he'll cost about a third of the price of Kai Havertz. And I think his upside and his potential might be very, very similar to Kai. So I think I'd go Charles de Catelier as my fifth and final signing. Um, so I've got Aaron's, Murray, de Catelier, Gavardiol and De Vries coming in. You have Enketia, Taliso, Bremer, Onana, Lamptey and Pau Torres. You've got six, is that right? Yeah, three and yeah. a free. Three and a free. Working that free transfer market. And you have to. You've also ticked one of the boxes that I haven't ticked. You've signed somebody from the city of Turin. So Paratici's kept happy. I haven't signed anyone from there. I may have to go and look for a free transfer. Who's on a, who's out of contract? Hang on a second. Maybe, maybe just loan De Chilio to cover both wingback positions as he has done everywhere else. <laughs> It's the only role for him. He's nowhere near... Right, let's see. Who's at a contract? Um, we could loan out Brian Hill and bring in Bernadeschi as the backup to uh, to Kulosevsky. Or Decilio is also on a free, so we could just sign him as the third. That's who we're getting. We're getting Decilio in... Uh, just to tick the box of signing someone connected to the city of Turin on a free, lovely, jubbly, he'll do nicely. Bit of experience. Someone for Conte to chat to in Italian as well. It's always nice to have someone that the manager can just, you know, share a glass of wine with and discuss the, the pol- political climate in, in, in Italy. So that's who we're going with. Um, we've, just had a, we've just had a message there put in the chat group while we're recording that. Uh... Ollie Skipper signed the new five-year deal, so thankfully neither of us offloaded him because that would be a very quick turnaround. That would be. It would have been bad news for poor Ollie Skip. Um, right. The other purpose of this podcast is to discuss Liverpool's upcoming game, and we've only left about 15 minutes for it because it only deserves about 15 minutes because Everton are absolutely shocking. We have on a previous podcast, attempted to fix Everton. At the moment, Carl, they appear beyond fixing. Now, they did win last time out against that very sad Manchester United team that we saw last night. They've won two of their last seven games. The other one was against Newcastle in a game in which Newcastle bombarded them. And somehow, in the 99th minute, Alex Awobi popped up with the winning goal. Might be his only useful contribution of the season. Uh, they've won three league matches under Frank Lampard. A decimated Leeds, that game against Newcastle and United. They also defeated 
Brentford and the mighty Boreham Wood uh, to give Frank five wins from his time in charge. Uh, overall thoughts on Everton and um, what have you noticed that's different since Frank Lampard took over as manager? Uh, their hope of avoiding relegation? That's quite different. It's a little bit worse now. I think I think that they might just do enough, to be honest. I think that Burnley change a manager, obviously. We don't know how that's going to go, but it doesn't fill me with confidence that they haven't brought somebody in straight away. Everton, I think that they'll just get enough wins along the way just to keep themselves above that little line there. I don't know, honestly, where all the results are going to come from because I looked at the... I looked at the fixture list a couple of weeks ago and honestly it was just like, oh, they're going to lose that one. Well, they're going to lose that one. Well, they're going to lose that one. But then they got a couple of games now where since then the teams that they're playing against have not looked good either. I mean, like they're playing Leicester tonight. We're recording this on uh, Wednesday. Leicester, they won a couple of games. I didn't see the European game, so I can't speak to how they're playing there. But against Newcastle, I wasn't really impressed. Big, big gaps everywhere. I think Everton have got a couple of players who are in form and actually caring enough and, and putting the effort in where they can get at teams like Leicester. I mean, later on in the campaign, they've got Watford away. They've been dreadful on the road, Everton. Really, really, really poor. But you'd think if Watford are close to going down at that point, maybe that's one they get a result at. Maybe at home to Brentford is one they get a result at. I think there's just a couple of games there where they'll have to win one of them, you know? And and if they do beat Leicester tonight and put, make it back-to-back victories, that's, that kind of puts a bit of a gap between them, doesn't it? I mean, even even if Burnley do go on a bit of a, a run where they absolutely lock it down and the defence is really good, it's just it's a lot of ground to make up in not very many games at all. And like I said, Iwobi, I think over the last probably three weeks or so, has been one of the better players. Anthony Gordon, they keep trying to take him out of the team and then having to bring him on because he's one of the only ones who is really working hard from the front and making things happen for them. Richarlison is, I wouldn't say he's playing great, but he is actually creating quite a bit for them. He's getting himself into a few decent positions. And I think Mikolenko is just starting to find his feet as well now. And if they get just like one or two partnerships in, in key areas together, like Iwobi and Mikolenko down that side has been pretty good. I think Godfrey... Um, getting to play that side alongside a, a, a bit more of a steady defensive presence as well has been a good thing for them. Mm. Maybe they'll just do enough. Right, here's a little exercise. Win-loss draw the following eight games. For Win-loss draw for Everton. Everton home to Leicester. I'm going to go a win because I just don't think Leicester are at it at all. Away to Liverpool. 17-0. At home to Chelsea. Defeat. Away to Leicester. Uh, we'll say a defeat there as well. Away to Watford. A point. At home to Brentford. A win. At home to Crystal Palace. Maybe a draw. And away to Arsenal. Defeat. Okay. Now, same thing, but for Burnley. At home to Southampton. Draw. At home to Wolves. Nil-nil. 
It does. It reeks of nil-nil, doesn't it? Absolutely. I can tell you that scoreline now. It's nil-nil. <laughs> Don't Seven even bother playing. Game, one on Just target. Call, call it into the Premier League. We'll take the draw. We'll all move on. Waste nobody's time. It's a Sunday game at 2pm as well. That might be on television. <laughs> uh, away to, to Watford. That's the one. That's the one they've got to win, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I, I'm writing Watford off, and it's Hodgie, so I'm going to go for a Burnley win on that one. Okay. Uh, at home to Aston Villa. To keep things interesting, and because Villa's season is tailing off dramatically, a win for Burnley. Away to Spurs. An absolute humbling Spurs to put <laughs> four past them. Away to Villa. A quick-fire turnaround revenge mission where Villa suddenly turn up and show signs of what to look forward to next season. Right. So as things stand, you have Everton finishing on 36 points and you have Burnley on 33 points and one game left. Mm -hmm. Burnley at home to Newcastle. Needing the win to stay up on goal difference. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean they're level on goal difference tonight before Everton's match but they're Liverpool playing Aston, Liverpool away on Saturday <laughs> <laughs> so Everton's is going to be at least at least 15 worse off by this point Newcastle are going to beat Burnley Oh, so you have Newcastle you have Everton staying up then Yeah, I think Burnley would beat Newcastle on the final day of the season I think Burnley at home with everything to play for with their basically potentially the future of the club depending on it and big sam in the dugout swilling gravy fucking rubbing it all over himself i think that's got one nil burnley ben me in the 94th minute former player manager ben me uh in the 94th minute with a header to send everton down the whistle's already gone at the emirates everton have lost 3-1 to arsenal all focus turns to the screen. It's the last minute at Turf Moor. It's nil-nil, but Burnley get a corner. Oh, it would be magnificent. It would be magnificent. I I, I, I still think it's all up in the air. Like you said, look, it, you know, the thing is, a lot of this comes down to teams like Villa and Leicester, because obviously Everton play Leicester twice. Burnley play Villa twice. Both of those teams are a little bit tragic and likely to be very much on the beach across these next couple of weeks. Although Villa, uh, Leicester rather at least have to keep focus for their European Cup, uh, European Conference games. It's just when I look at the Burnley fixtures, the only one I look at and think you're getting slapped is Spurs away. Whereas when I look at Everton, I think Liverpool will slap you. Chelsea will slap you. Arsenal will slap you. Leicester could slap you at home. Like, the only thing that's a saving grace for Everton is they do have Watford, Brentford and Palace as three of their last four, all of whom could potentially have no real interest in the game. They might all just put their feet up and think, right, that'll do us. We're we're fine now. Uh, so we don't have to worry, or in Watford's case, you know, we've been relegated. Nothing matters from here on. It's going to be fun. It is going to be fun. 
But tell me that if we won the quadruple and they got relegated, that wouldn't just be the cherry on top of the world's biggest cake. I mean, we're talking diabetes for half a Merseyside, aren't we? <laughs> Absolutely. And alcohol poisoning for the other half. <laughs> yeah. if, either in celebration or mourning, one or the other, everybody's getting absolutely tanked. Um, look, they, they haven't been good under Lampard at all. They weren't good for a long time under Benitez. Truth be told, they haven't been any good since the month of September ended. Uh, since in, in the first six games, they won four times. They have won four times since then. Uh, they have been an absolute shambles for most of the year. If they stay up, it is purely because of the incompetence of Burnley, Watford and Norwich. Very little to do with Everton. Though, if they stay up, Jake Humphreys will absolutely tweet that Frank Lampard has worked a miracle in keeping them up. Is there anything about this Everton side that we should be concerned about, Carl? The fact that it's a derby, like that hasn't mattered to them in, in recent years. Bar last season, which just doesn't count because we had no players. Is there, is there any real risk here that they cause us a big problem? and stop our title push in its tracks. There shouldn't be. There shouldn't be at all. They've been like bad, but they've been worse away from home, like dreadful away from home. He has made them noticeably and considerably, objectively and subjectively, worse away from home. No question about it. So we should not have any issues whatsoever against Everton at any point. It doesn't you know it doesn't matter. We could be playing them on I don't care. Play them at Wembley. Play them in Germany for all I care. It doesn't matter. We should be beating them. But at Anfield, with the run that we're on, with the performances we're putting in the minute, with the players that we have in form right now, of course we should be beating them. The best method that they have at the minute in terms of build-up play and causing problems to any opposition is that left flank of theirs. Mikolenko, mm. I think, is is just about getting himself sorted out and settled in now. He seems to be be given a run of games to be trusted as such. Him and Godfrey, like I say, is starting to get a little bit of a partnership there. Unfortunately, on the other side of Godfrey has been Michael Keane, who has been a consistent train wreck still, and it's just not happening for him at all. So whether there's changes or they try to do what United do and do a system change there again, because it's been quite inconsistent as well up until the last couple of games for Everton. Um, but between him and Mikolenko, and between then uh, Iwobi ahead of him, and then Richarlison down that side of the attack as well. That's that's where their best play has come from. That's where their most, uh, I think, best best pressing has come from, and counter uh, counter attacks from that side. That's where most of their open play creativity seems to be stemming from at the minute. And then Anthony Gordon, just as an individual, someone who can run all day long and is really working hard for the team. And he is honestly, he's playing very very well indeed. Like whether he's starting or coming on as a sub, I think he's consistently being their most impactful player which doesn't say it always goes right or that he makes something really good happen at the end of it but he's trying his ass off like basically he's he's the go-to guy for them he's an impressive he's an impressive uh, diver as well oh yeah yeah absolutely i mean like i said this i'm not i'm not saying that all of the stuff that he's doing is good but he's trying it all he is trying every single bit of it like there, there have been plenty of them at the end of it where he's done like a really hard, powerful run, and then his cross at the end of it has been rubbish, and there's been nobody in the middle anyway, but he's trying, and nobody else was carrying the ball, nobody else was taking the fight to to Newcastle, uh, to United for a period where they were just 
just defending with like eight people and just hoping that United would keep doing absolutely nothing, which they most obligingly did. Um, I would be a little bit more concerned about Everton than I was about United, to be honest, in terms of that derby context they'll want to stop us all that kind of thing mm. i don't see any of that from united at all i would see more of it from everton and i would see more of it from everton's fans as well so yeah i think that's, that's a good show but well, overall, the, the thing we know is that that they're going to turn up and jordan pickford is going to care seamus coleman will care uh, anthony gordon will care Richarlison will care. Those four lads are going to turn up and give a shit. Pickford, because he's just a little ball of rage. Coleman and Gordon, because Everton is their life. And Richarlison, just because he hates Liverpool. Those four are at least going to try. So that alone is a bigger test than what we saw last night from United. There are obviously huge weak points in this team. Defensively, they've conceded 52 goals this season. They're not good defensively. They've scored 33 goals. They're not good going forward. You mentioned their away form. They have played 15 games away from home this season. They've won one of them. Um, They've won one. That was against Brighton in the third game of the season. They've drawn three away games. They drew to Leeds in the second game of the season. United in the seventh game of the season. And Chelsea, surprisingly, in the 17th game of the season. Every other league game, they have lost. And they have not been good in the vast majority of them. Spurs pumped them uh, just over a month ago. Southampton beat them comfortably. They gave West Ham some problems. But, I mean, Burnley beat them. Burnley beat them a tough... Burnley don't beat anybody. Burnley have won, like, four games or something all season. So, is it three games? It might... It might be three games. Many games have Burnley won. Burnley have won four games all season. Uh, and that win against uh, Everton was only their third win since October. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, they're dreadful away from home. This is a team that we should turn over. Regardless of who plays. work that will be a little bit in on somebody. Ducouré's got an unconventional way of tackling people. Uh, they're going to be without Patterson, Davies, Townsend, and if they lose anyone tonight. But Yerry Mina is back fit again, so maybe he comes back in for the game. Uh, our only doubt is Bobby, but Klopp says he hopes he'll be back in time for this one. Do you think we see more than four changes from the team that played last night? Uh, one, or four or more, sorry, four or more changes. Yeah, I do. I think, I think five I've gone for, yeah, five. Okay, so Ali starts. Mm-hmm. Trent starts. Yeah, I've kept Trent. Ebu starts. Yep, that's one. Virgil. Costas or Robbo? I've gone for Costas. So he's my second change. For... Yeah, I like that. I think this is a good game for him as well. 
Um, midfield, I expect Naby to start over Thiago. I've gone for Curtis Jones to start over Thiago. Oh, and not Naby. So you, you're holding Naby back for Villarreal? Yeah, I'm keeping Naby and Thiago wrapped up for this one. So you're going Henderson, Fabinho, and Curtis? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely good enough to go against them. Um, so that's your third change. So you're then, you're then changing two of the front line. Yeah. So are you going Bobby through the middle and Jota off the left with Salah yes. on the right? Yeah? Yeah, assuming Firmino's fit, yeah. And if not, I'd probably go with Origi. And keep Sadio and Diaz wrapped up for Sadio's going to go on for sure. And yeah, one of Thiago or Keita probably will or will be needed or whatever. But the sadist in me really wants to see Diaz running at <laughs> yeah. James Coleman. It really uh, wants to see Diaz running. At I, James could, Coleman. I could even see like the final sub, final ten minutes, that kind of thing. And there's still there still might be two goals in that there. Oh, <laughs> uh, which whoever plays. I'm very. I, I'd like to see someone with pace playing through the middle, because Michael Keane is sans pace. To be polite, um, he, he he just he is terrible, absolutely terrible. Uh, I'll be curious to see how they line up. I'm expecting it to be basically what they've been going with: Pickford, um, Coleman, Keane. I don't think you bring Mina back in for that one. We'll see if he starts tonight. Uh, Godfrey and Michaelenko. I think that's probably the back four he picks. Ducure, Alan, and Iwobi as a three, and then Gordon, Calvert-Lewin, and Richarlison as a three. Yeah, unless Gray starts and Gordon comes on a sub again. Yeah, that... The only other the only other option might be that he doesn't start Calvert Lewin, that he starts for Charleston through the middle and plays Gray and Gordon on the wings and looks to bed in, play basically a five man midfield and just try and hit us on the counter with pace and behind our fullbacks. But uh, it's Frank Lampard, so I'm not expecting too much in the way of a tactical game plan because if you've got a tactical game plan, go out there and run around a bit, lads, and express yourself doesn't really hit the same way um that's enough talk about Everton what is your prediction for this game and 17-0 is not a real prediction oh that was just my first half scoreline <laughs> uh I'll tone it down I will I will go for back-to-back four nils yeah I think that's fair I think that's fair I'm going to back Henderson to score in this game. That's how dominant we're going to be. Henderson's Mil- going to score. Milner off the bench as well. He's going to Milner- score as well. Here's, here's one for you. Here's your, your trivia question of the day. We are approaching the end of the seventh and hopefully final year of James Milner's tenure at Liverpool. How many goals from open play has James Milner scored for Liverpool? Three, seven, one a season on average. There you go. And most of them came. Most of them came in uh, his first two seasons. Um, 
In his defence, he's been a bit unlucky a few times this season and last. I remember one of his shots getting blocked by his own teammate. One hit the post, and then there were a a couple he should have scored. Maybe didn't do too well. There's no no bad luck when you're James Milner and someone is paying you 150 grand a week and allowing you on the pitch with this Liverpool team. There's no bad luck in your life. All your luck has come in at once. Everything else is just the way the world works. Um, yeah, Milner getting getting a goal would be nice. I'd really like to see him come on with like four or five minutes to go and we're well ahead. Like 4-0 like last night's the perfect time to bring Milner on. You bring him on, he goes in for one of his tackles on Anthony Gordon. Gordon doesn't get touched, rolls round on the ground. Milner goes over and just like a like a dad playing football with his kid in the park, puts his arm around him and says, look, you need to sort your life out. What are you doing? First of all, you're an Evertonian. There's the first thing you need to change. Let, let me, with my wisdom, guide you through the remaining, you know, the years of your life because I can live through you and, and just take Gordon and turn him into just a nicer human being because you know when he's an Evertonian and he's a diving little twat he's got that snarly little face all you really want to do is give him a bit of a slap um you've gone 4-0 I will go 5-0 I will go all in on the Reds to win 5-0 I think Bobby gets a brace if he plays if not Jota's gonna run wild Salah's back in form and what better thing for him to see than some nice blue Everton shirts because he always seems to get a little bit excited by the blues. Um, and that's it. We will leave it there. Anything else you want to touch on or anything you've got to plug before we go? Usual European piece before the weekend. Cool. Check that out on The Independent. Follow Carl at Carl Matchett and read his work on The Independent and This Is Anfield. Follow Guy Drinkle at Guy Drinkle. Listen to the Two-Footed Pod every day at 4pm, sometimes a little bit later, but generally at 4pm. The Daily Red every day around lunchtime. The Spurs idea was not from Andy Wales. It was from KOR99. So thank you to him for the idea. And that is us. We will see you again soon. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement. And we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.